0: Hi, this is Dr. Balkan Devlen. I'm a senior fellow at the MacDonald Laurier Institute and this is Podplas Canada. Today I'm joined by Monk Senior Fellow at the MacDonald Laurier Institute, Dr. Christian Luprecht who is also a class the class of 1965 professor in leadership at the Department of Political Science and Economics at the Royal Military College with joint appointments in Queen's University and a household name when you think about defense and security policy in Canada. Today, we will be talking about Canada's presence in Eastern Europe, in the Baltics, in Ukraine, Canadian contributions, to the various NATO missions in this part of the world and why it matters and what can we learn going forward for the missions that Canada is being part of and how these missions and Canadian presence there contribute to our security as well as the security of our allies. Christian, welcome. Hello, Balkan. Let me start by talking a little bit about our presence in the Baltics. On April twenty seventh, McDonald Laurier Institute organizes a strategic dialogue called Canada and the Baltics, with the support of various institutions that bring together a large group of experts and high level policymakers across both sides of the Atlantic. Most of the meeting was under Chatham House rule, but the public component included a speech by the Latvian president, uh, Egil Levitz, as well as opening speeches by Minister Karina Gold and Robert Oliphant, as well as uh, the macdonald laurie Institute Managing Director by Bradley Crawley, which you can find the video of this event at the Institute's website. One of the themes that emerged Following those public speeches in the meeting itself was first the importance of, of Canadian contributions to the missions in the Baltics, but also a general, I would say a lament in the sense that the, the mission and Canadian contributions and why it is important is not as widely as it should be known among the Canadian public. This was also one of the themes that you have highlighted in a recent report that you co-edited with Alexander Lanoshka and Alex Moyens for the NATO Defence College that looks at the lessons learned from the enhanced forward presence in the Baltics NATO's enhanced forward presence over there. So maybe it might be a good idea to start with a quick overview of what's the role of Canada in the enhanced forward presence, what do we do there, why it's important And what are the lessons learned from that mission in the past four years going forward before we continue with some of the other other topics?
1: So there's a silver lining here, right? So the fact that Canadians aren't particularly paying attention to this mission, this mission is not particularly controversial at the low level of awareness, is also indicative of just how safe we are in Canada and just how privileged a position we have on the global stage, especially in a time of heightened geopolitical contestation, competition, revisionist and hegemonic foreign policies being pursued by adversaries such as China, Russia. I think there's an opportunity here for Canadians to understand just how lucky we are geopolitically where we ended up in the continent. Imagine, for instance, the Alaska Purchase has never happened and we would have a land border with Russia today in North America. I'm sure this conversation would be looking quite differently than the one we are having. So I think it's always important to keep that in mind as Canadians. And so why it is that we need to work so hard to raise the awareness of Canadians for these types of missions? Because, of course, it is these types of missions that ultimately ensure our security, our prosperity, our democracy, our stability. By going abroad, by having this expeditionary capacity and bringing that expeditionary capacity and, uh, and experience to bear. And that really dates back to 1940. If you think back to 1938, 1940, what's sometimes known as the Ogdensburg Declaration and subsequently its corollary, the Kingston Dispensation, when the US president and the Canadian prime minister essentially concluded that they were better off collaborating and trying to keep the threats to North America far away from North America shores. And that required an expeditionary posture in order to be able to intervene and provide stability wherever Canadian interests were, are threatened. And to that effect, it's important to remember that our most important strategic relationship inherently is with the United States, given that we share the continent with this global superpower but our second most important relationship is with Europe and has long been with Europe and arguably has been with Europe longer than the United States. If you think about Canada's support in World War I for our European allies and you think about Canada entering the war, at the outbreak of war in 1939, whereas the United States, of course, uh, took almost two years to come around and to enter the war. And so I think it's important to remember that there wouldn't have been a staging ground from which to, or there probably wouldn't have been a staging ground from which to invade the continent on D-Day if Canada hadn't been there to support its close ally partner, the United Kingdom, and other partners throughout the region in World War II. And so we have this longstanding commitment to peace, stability in Europe. And that comes out of sort of a sense that we wanted to ensure that no one single power would dominate Europe, and that certainly that power, if it was going to be one, had to be a power that was friendly to our interests, our values, our way of looking at the world. And so this is why Canada got engaged in World War One, it's why Canada got engaged in World War Two. It's why Canada had a significant true presence throughout the Cold War in Germany. What is sometimes referred to as our most successful peacekeeping operation. The fact that we were indeed able to make an important contribution to keeping the Soviet Union at bay and to preserving stability, peace, democracy, free markets, liberalism, social democracy throughout continental Europe with that important deployment. And so it shouldn't come as a surprise that when the territorial integrity of European allies, the Harmony of Europe and the European Union and NATO member allies and partners, their prosperity, their democratic institutions, that when those are threatened, that Canada would once again make a robust contribution to that effort and a robust contribution, not just in terms of troops, but in terms of headquarters capacity, which is always very difficult to find in NATO because there's only about half a dozen countries that have headquarters capacity, let alone the sort of experience that Canada can bring to bear when it comes to headquarters capacity for multinational, plurilateral missions, such as the one that the enhanced forward presence provides. So it was perhaps not Canada's first choice to be able to take on that heavy lifting. But there wasn't really anyone else to go to among the allies, as the other allies that could have taken this on were already preoccupied. And given that two of our other closest allies, the United Kingdom and the United States, had already committed, the key ally that we defended during the Cold War, that is to say Germany, already committed as a framework nation to Lithuania that left Estonia as the nation that required that capacity. And with there not being anyone else to take that on, it meant that if Canada didn't take it on, the enhanced forward presence, as we know it, would likely not have happened. And we would not have a land deterrent for the Baltic countries and arguably for Poland of the sort systematic with the political backing from the Atlantic Council and NATO operationally that we now have. So it's very important to understand just how key a contribution Canada is making, not just by sending soldiers, not just by sending headquarters, but by enabling the allied effort that we see in containing and deterring Russian revisionism and hegemonic foreign policy, and the broader contribution we are making to ensuring the stability, prosperity, democracy in our second most important strategic relationship, that is the relationship with Europe and ultimately the importance of the transatlantic security relationship. And why do we do that? Because NATO is ultimately Canada's most important multilateral institution. It allows us to leverage our interests the way no other multilateral institution which Canada is involved uh, can. And so anything that threatens not just NATO member countries and allies, But that ultimately threatens the integrity of NATO in itself, fundamentally runs counter Canadian interests, because this is an institution that has been a key force multiplier in terms of ensuring our own stability, our own interests, and the ability for this country that is really in the middle of three oceans on a continent far away to punch far above its weight in terms of international influence and international interests. So this is not just. investment in Latvia. It is a very key strategic commitment and strategic investment. And I suspect that we will see Canada continue to make that commitment as long as it took in Germany. So as long as it takes to ensure that Russia understands that playing these sorts of nefarious games on the borders of NATO members and NATO allies is simply not on and that Canada is enabling not just its own interests, but that of its allies and of NATO as a whole to be able to provide deterrence, yes, by punishment and by denial, but particularly deterrence in terms of showing the political commitment and the political will that allies will stand together.
0: I think it is extremely important what you just said. I think the emphasizing the notion, particularly for the public, to recognize that our contribution, shouldering our fair share and making enabling this mission possible is also an area in which our interests and values overlap very very nicely so it's actually and you know enhances both of that and us you know make it a key contribution to both promoting and, and, and protecting our interests including prosperity and security but also that actually defend uh, Canadian values so there is no sort of in essence a divergence regards to this particular mission and, and you know, I, I think that's a very important point to point out and a broader you know, context in which Canada's mission is beyond the you know, 600 uh, or so troops I think right now Canada has in Latvia that it's essential to be there there to make this, this possible and makes everyone safer and or secure. One of the things I would like to turn to is, you know, the, the mission has been going on for years, I think, right now is slightly, maybe a little over. In that co-edited volume, you have discussed a number of lessons learned going forward, uh, both for the mission and, and perhaps other missions that NATO is engaged in the Eastern flank, in addition to the enhanced forward presence. Maybe you could walk us through that a little bit before going to talk about the other missions that Canada is involved, including op- in Operation Unifier in Ukraine, as well as the Canadian presence because of the tailored forward presence in the Black Sea and the Air, air Policing Mission and how they can be you know, interrelated and what can we learn from the enhanced forward presence to be applied to these other missions.
1: Yeah, so I think if you look at this from a strategic perspective, Canada is engaged on all the key flanks that NATO is facing in light of sort of the broader sort of reflections that I just offered in terms of our own interests. So there's the northeastern flank where we're engaged with Russia. So let's say the enhanced forward presence in the Baltic countries and in Poland, of course, in particular in Latvia. There's also as part of reassurance, so the broader sort of deterrence mission with regards to Russia. We're also engaged in the tailored forward presence, which brings us down more on the southern flank along Romania and also to some extent into the Baltic Sea. And then if you think about this southern flank, there are really three elements to that southern flank. There is the Black Sea and Russian containment containing sort of Russian ambitions in the Black Sea and also with regards to Ukraine. There is the southern flank that is sort of the the counterterrorism missions of in the Middle East and the counterinsurgency. And then the broader counterinsurgency missions and capacity building missions, advise and assist missions, In the Mediterranean, when you get over more into the Western Mediterranean and off the course of the Maghreb. And so, if you look at sort of the missions, where does Canada have the bulk of its expeditionary commitment? Well, let's go down all those flanks. It's, of course, in Latvia, it's in particular our contribution to the air mission of the Tailored Forward Presence a bit of a surveillance and air component on the southern flank on the Black Sea. It's a sea component on the central southern flank with regards to the Middle East and the western southern flank in the Mediterranean. And Canada has a presence in all countries surrounding Syria, with the exception of Syria itself, so that's to say Turkey, Canada took on the headquarters capacity and the leadership role in the NATO advice and assist mission to Iraq that's being run out of Kuwait. So our troops in in Kuwait, we have a presence in Jordan, we have a presence in Israel with regards to, for instance, the Coraline Heights that we've long had, and we have a presence in Lebanon. And in addition to that, we're doing the capacity building training effort in the Ukraine. And so you can see that what looks, I think, to the Canadian public as sort of these little bits and pieces and pins on a map, actually fit into a broader NATO strategic effort to provide deterrence, capability building, advise and assist, counterinsurgency, anti-terrorism, Anything essentially that ends up threatening the stability, prosperity, democracy within Europe across that long flank. And of course, we have a host of other missions sort of across the world. But I think for many people, they don't put together, they just hear about a ship in the Mediterranean or they just hear about the advise and assist mission that we're leading in Iraq. They don't see that broader strategic picture and the broader strategic contribution. And I mean, make no mistake, like these are significant commitments. One frigate alone, that's about two. 240 sailors, 540 or so soldiers. If you take the combined battle group and headquarters capacity, about 135 Royal Canadian Air Force members. So that's a 915 members just there on Operation Reassurance. And we haven't even yet talked about the other commitments across the Mediterranean, even some of the counterinsurgency commitments that we have in the Sahara Sahel, for instance, especially in Francophone Africa. So for a relatively modest military of uh, an authorized strength of 72,000, an active strength sort of of 65, by the time you take out people who are out on sick leave and who are on training or so, you're probably down into probably about 55, 58,000 deployable individuals. We've got a significant contribution, a significant deployment, significant heavy lifting that we are making in contributing to our allies and partners. And we have to remember that this is not too make the world a better place. Although we hope, of course, that is ultimately one of our objectives. Canada article two of NATO, is often referred to as the Canada article, where it's also about a community of, as you point out, values, and a particular way of seeing the world and believing that the world, regions, countries are better run when they adhere to certain basic premises. But it is ultimately about Canadian interests, and it is ultimately about protecting our security, our prosperity, our democracy. And it means that one of the reasons we can afford to invest so modestly in our defense is precisely because we're able to keep the challenges that we face and that our partners face at bay – far away from the Canadian continent. Now we can have debates about whether what we're doing is sufficient in terms of defense spending, in terms of transformation, in terms of renewal, in terms of re-equipment, in terms of postures of non-conventional threats such as cyber and space. But all that to say is that there is actually a good strategic reason for why we're doing what we're doing and the enabler role that we are playing in the process.
0: These are great, great points, and it actually brings me two questions I'd like to ask. Given, given the picture that you just painted from the Baltics to the to the Eastern Mediterranean to the Maghreb, as you rightly point out, most people in Canada think about them as you know, separate missions, and may or may not be aware of of several of them, apart from Latvia, mission which also you know, suffers, unfortunately, uh, from a lack of visibility occasionally, but. Are we thinking, or the government of Canada and the approach to these missions, are they thinking in an integrated way? Or, or can that treating these missions across the eastern and the southern flanks of NATO and thinking them in a more integrated way would be beneficial? And if we do need to do that, or how should we go about doing it? One of the primary sort of themes that emerged from that dialogue was... Although, you know, Baltic allies and, and others in the region were appreciative of Canada's contributions, they also did highlight an, a more sort of sustained commitment in this sense, a connected commitment to our Eastern European allies in an integrated way rather than a sort of piecemeal missions and more coordinated way of, of doing those things. How are we doing in this sense, an integrated approach? And could we do better? And if, if yes, what uh, what should we do to make it more efficient and a, an integrated look at the region or broadly?
1: People always say, you know, the world needs more Canada. And I think if you look at all those missions, you can see that the world is getting plenty of Canada. Maybe the world is actually getting a little bit too much Canada because we keep on relying on Canada and Canadian assets to do so much of the bidding and so much of the support missions. And here it's important to remember that, look, the 21st century, what we are embarking on, the demand for these types of missions is only going to go up. If you think about the way, for instance, the challenges that we continue to face in the Middle East, both in terms of stability, as well as sort of in terms of operations to contain Iran, to contain counter-piracy missions. If you think about the growing challenge of containing the ambitions of China in the Asia Pacific, and you compound that with climate change, much of which is hitting Those countries that are already the least, in many ways, sort of the least sustainable as is in their governance systems and in their economic systems. So, if you think particularly in terms of the doubling of the population of Africa in the next 30 years or so, and the challenges that will present in terms of migration, of making sure that people actually have jobs, have places to live in a sustainable fashion. So, there's no question that demand for Canadian assets will continue to go up. And so, we need to ask ourselves. How are we going to prioritize those assets when there is growing demand and chances are that resources, if we look at sort of the last 20 years, that resources will remain modest given the other pressures on Canadian expenditures. And so here it's important to see these missions not just as us shoring up our allies, not just as a political commitment in terms of deterrence and providing real sort of, but hopefully temporary military deterrence capability. It is also an abler for newer members and allies to help them to cooperate more, closely with NATO, to help them in their military transformation, to help them in the way, for instance, they posture their own armed forces in transforming their command structure into a NATO command structure, and also for them to learn to operate with Canada and with other allies. Look, our American partners often joke that, you know, what does NATO stand for? It stands for needs Americans to operate. And so part of what we want to demonstrate here is that We can actually do things on our own. And what we are practicing, of course, at the Latvia Mission is by far the most multinational of the four missions, is an opportunity also for newer countries to learn to work with us and for us to learn to work with them so that when their capacity is needed, that they can help backfill for some of the areas that sooner or later we're going to leave behind, need to leave behind as a result of other pressures, for instance, by the United States calling for more support in the Asia-Pacific. And so this is also about very much a capacity-building among those rim countries, so they can mature into providing effective deterrence with perhaps less Canadian support sort of in the medium term, and for them also to have their capacity to be able to, uh, to contribute elsewhere, uh, where allied interests are ultimately at stake. And of course, this is the strength of NATO. This is, explains why this is the most enduring, and most powerful military alliance the world has ever known, and why the alliance continues to endure, right? Since, you know, people said after the Soviet Union, why do we still need this alliance? Well, it turns out we need this alliance more than ever, given the challenges that we are facing both across this very long flank and the challenges that I just outlined that are going to confront us for the decades to come. And it also explains why nobody ever leaves this alliance. People see it as an opportunity, but currently we have some countries, and this is ultimately how alliances work, that are client countries primarily that are security takers rather than security providers. And so part of what we are also building here is a capacity for some of those clients to be able to become more systematic contributors to the alliance. And I think that will happen. And as a result of the enhanced forward presence in Latvia, for instance, it will greatly accelerate the ability to work together, to cooperate together, to build that trust, and to also be able to reassure the Americans that other countries other than just the United States can step up, can work together together. And so that the United States can worry about priorities elsewhere in the world, while their extended umbrella of the extended nuclear deterrence, for instance, will always be necessary, while sort of some lift capacity, intelligence capacity, and so forth, will always be an important component of NATO, that we can also reassure the Americans that NATO is not a net drain on the United States, but rather that other allies are doing their fair share in sharing that burden. In being able to step up and to do so, not just tactically and operationally here and now, but can do so strategically into the future.
0: That would be the true nature, the true proper understanding of burden sharing, rather than some random number of of two percent GDP, I suppose, instead of you know how and. in, in what ways you contribute to the capabilities for the defense of the alliance rather than you know, whether you're spending X amount of money. And going back to the old saying of teaching someone to catch a fish rather than give them a fish for the long-term sustainability. And I think you know what, what you highlighted with regards to the Canadian contributions in building capacity in the allies and partners in the Eastern and Southern flank so that would be less you know need for Canada on those theaters in the mid medium term is I think a fantastic way of putting it you know spending pennies today, in other words, to avoid spending you know dollars in the far in the future is is actually a, an excellent way I would say uh, to point out one perhaps last thing I'd like to ask is Canada is the operation unifier in Ukraine, and we had a a workshop yesterday on May 11th, as a part of the Defense and Security Foresight Group, you and Alexander Lenoshka is also co-directing a sub subcommittee of that group on the Black Sea and the Black Sea Security. Uh, one of the, of course, issues that came up is, you know, strengthening Ukraine's capacity and capabilities to defend itself against Russian aggression. And one of the issues that was raised is that, you know, it's not really practical to assume that in the near future Ukraine will, will not be necessarily be a member of NATO given the presence of Operation Unifier in Ukraine, taking into account the lessons we learned from the enhanced forward presence, how can that mission, together with the tailored forward presence in particularly in Romania and the sea component, can it be expanded to include perhaps the maritime dimension with regards to capacity building for Ukraine and for Ukrainian defense capabilities to increase the security there as well as the allies surrounding Ukraine?
1: My views on this are probably not the most popular. I've long been of the view that NATO expansion is an idea that has passed. I think that it is partially perhaps NATO expansion also that has gotten us into some of the pickle that some of our allies find themselves in. We can't undo history and we always need to look forward in terms of the decisions that we've made. But I think one of the ways Uh, to provide some greater stability is to signal that on the one hand, and I think this is what you can read between the tea leaves over how this has unfolded over the last 20 years, that NATO expansion for countries such as Ukraine or Georgia is probably not in the cards, yet it is clearly in our interest to ensure that we can signal to the Russians that these are countries that have our support. There are many things that we can do to provide them with support that doesn't necessarily require them to join NATO, for instance, in terms of intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, in terms of equipment and in terms of sort of training in terms of their command structure and, and their command reforms which are desperately needed in some of the ossified structures that we see in these countries. So so modernization as a way of signaling that these are countries that with our efforts clearly have the ability to defend themselves that in itself can act as a clear deterrent. This is sort of the classic approach that for instance countries such as Singapore, Finland, Sweden have long taken, and sometimes known as sort of the porcupine approach, that yeah, you could invade us, but it's going to get really painful, and it's going to get really hard. And so I think that's sort of part of the lesson that we want to take away here: that we have many partner countries that are stable, flourishing democracies that are not necessarily part of NATO, but where association and collaboration bilaterally, plurilaterally with NATO members can provide a significant degree of stability, deterrence, and assurance. And I think this is what we're ultimately here working towards. And so I think it's less in terms of, uh, should we be doing more in terms of sending it another ship or something like that into the maritime domain? And it's more about in the medium term, what can we do to deter Russian adventurism and revisionism and continue to build up, but also incentivize reforms and transformation, right? So when we go somewhere such as Ukraine, we can also then, rather than just saying, well, you know, just send us our troops and we're going to train them, we can couple that to certain expectations that Ukraine is going to transform its military, its command structure, its procurement systems, its training systems, its promotion systems. Systems, its recruitment systems, and it can learn to fight like a professional Western type force, which is a very different force structure than, for instance, Russia has. And so I think the incentive that this gives us is quite significant because it also means that countries such as Ukraine are becoming more adapted to NATO ways of doing things, to EU ways of doing things, simply by the incentive of continuing to support them. And look, all change is difficult, especially when you've done it one way for decades, and now you kind of have to change. I mean, Ukraine is a country that, relative to the rest of the European Union other members of the European Union, is not wealthy, to put it diplomatically, and so reason are inherently constrained. And so helping people to optimize the allocation of the resources that they have, human, financial, military, I think is an important component of that. The NATO-D program that works with several sort of key partner countries in terms of their professionalization, building up their staff colleges, their military colleges, doing professional military education. So there's a lot of things that we are doing that are not necessarily the kinetic realm. But that in the medium term and already like after the commitments that we've made are having a significant impact in building the capacity that countries are looking for. And so when you're clamoring for NATO membership, yes, it's a bit of a tough club to join. And I think we learned some hard lessons about what happens when people join and sort of the reaction that has. But I think we can achieve many of the same objectives, strategic objectives and ends without necessarily having additional countries join nature per se. And I think we're already seeing many of those results transpiring effectively on the ground. And it's easier for Canada to do this than the United States. Because, for instance, we have relatively few economic relations with Russia, whereas many of our European allies would have much greater difficulty contributing plilaterally, plurilaterally to the sort of capacity building mission that we have in Ukraine because they would draw the ire of Russia. So again, we're doing things where we optimize among NATO. There are certain things that certain countries can do that other countries would find much more difficult to do. And so, you know, as we often compare NATO to a six-pack, there are many flavors in the six-pack. And depending on sort of what party you're going to, and what sort of tastes people have, different types of flavors are the right flavors for the right opportunity and the advantage that we can harness there um, as, as part of this much broader military, joint military effort.
0: Excellent Christian. I think uh, we did touch upon a a multiplicity of issues that affects Canadian security and why it is important that Canada continues to be heavily involved in the eastern and the southern flank and how that actually contributes to Canadian interests and prosperity, both in the short term and in the long term. And I really like the the emphasis of leveraging uh, what we can do best and optimizing our resources to get the biggest bang for the buck that we're putting in by also enhancing the capacity of our allies and partners, um, so that they are much more robust, uh, much more advanced in terms of their defense capabilities in a broad set of domains. And that we can actually do that, as you pointed out, perhaps uh, with less costs, uh, political and economic costs, compared to some of our allies in Europe who have more complex relationships with Russia. Thank you very much for joining me today and for your great work uh, that you have been doing on this subject and bringing it to the attention of the Canadian public. And I urge our listeners to go and check the McDonald laurier Institute's events page for both the links to the, the public component of the uh, Canada and the Baltics Strategic Dialogue, as well as a public panel that Christian organized back in February 24th, I believe, on the lessons learned about enhanced Forward Presence. A, a fantastic two panels, actually, that discusses what we learned from that mission uh, going forward. Thank you very much, and talk to you later on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.